The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read a very short passage, verses 13 through 16. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is God's own word. Without error, with all authority, superseding every word of man alone. 1 Peter 1.13 begins with the word, therefore. And a basic lesson of Bible interpretation is when you see the word therefore, you're probably looking at a conclusion to material that was preceding or possibly an application of that material. I think we have both of those things in this short passage before us today. Nobody particularly enjoys uh, grammar lessons, but if you let me be the English teacher for a moment... We're switching here in the text from the indicative mood to the imperative. You who are in middle school, maybe you can go and impress your English teacher that you learned the difference between the indicative and the imperative. But what we've had up until and through verse 12 are what we call indicatives, that is, statements of fact. Peter stating the facts about our salvation, that it is coming because we were chosen by God, given a new birth into living hope, that we have an inheritance in heaven, and this fills us with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Those are descriptions of things that are true because of God's action in Christians. We call them indicatives. But now we have an imperative section where command is given. Based on what is true of us, we are commanded to do something. It's a behavioral passage here. And let me just point out, too, that in the telling of the gospel in the Scripture, you would say, I think, that the imperative rarely, if ever, precedes the indicative. That is, God doesn't command us to do things that he hasn't made it it possible for us to do, first of all. He has to change us. He has to empower us if we're going to be able to do. He doesn't say, do all these things, and if you compile a good record, I will do something for you. That's not the telling of the gospel as we see it. A wise principle was expressed by the theologian Augustine more than a thousand years ago. Augustine said something I've never been able to get out of my head when he said, Lord, command of me anything you will, 
But first, enable everything that you intend to command. That is a great word. It tells us that God's grace comes first, and God must empower us before he can command us. Well, 1 Peter 1.13 now does command Christians to prepare to experience Christian holiness. This is a great subject, and in some ways it, it spreads out across the book from this point onward. So this isn't the only passage in which we'll think about it. Holiness is what we call sanctification. We're saved in Christ, we're justified through Christ, and then we're being sanctified or made more like Christ. And we have this command in a number of places in the Old Testament that could be looked to. If you have a reference Bible, I imagine that verse 15 probably gives you some of the passages where be holy as I am holy is commanded. But you might be thinking, I I balk at this. I know I have before when I was younger at least, and I would see this command. God speaking, be holy as I am holy. And I would say, well, wait a minute. I think holiness is a great attribute of God. It it signifies his perfection, his moral purity, his greatness, how, how he is essentially different from what we are. He's without sin. He's without error. He's without any lack of anything. How can I be what God is? This sounds like a strange command. And I just say, how can I be holy? I can't be perfect. I can't be absolutely pure. How can I produce holiness in my life? Well, if you, if you are having that question, it's a good reason that you should have that question. Because when you look upon the idea of the holiness of God, you should feel very low and very humble and very inadequate. We think of Isaiah, the great classic passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where that prophet as an aristocrat, a man already gifted as a prophet, well-educated, high-standing in his nation for his religious condition as well as his aristocracy within the kingdom. And he came into the temple of God and saw a vision of God high and lifted up with attended by the trains of angels. It was a true vision that God gave him. And the angels were saying of God in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the vision that that Isaiah saw corresponded to what was being said. And the man went down on the floor on his face. And he essentially was just saying, I am not worthy to even look on this vision. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11 says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord God, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises and doing wonders? And the answer, of course, is no one is like unto God. No one is naturally like God or could look on God unaided if the Lord didn't allow us to do so. And so it's right for us to sort of draw back from this command to be holy But then there is a true way in which we can understand it. It wouldn't have been given to us as a command by the Scripture if it wasn't something that we could actually do if we have a right understanding. Holiness is not only purity and perfection. It is also separateness, being set apart, being different from something else. 
a, a degree of separation being set between you and other things, especially things that are of this world alone. And while it's right to say God is infinitely apart from us, he is saying, I have put in my children, those in whom I'm working salvation, a degree of holiness myself. In fact, Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all, God has put seeds of holiness in us. Yes, indeed, it's something we should respect, but it's something in which God is making us even like unto himself. Since we've been chosen in Christ, these indicatives that were there, since we've been born again to a living hope, since we possess an eternal inheritance, since we have joy in Christ, all these things are the work of God drawing us more to himself than to likeness to the world. And so he can say, more and more you should be growing in likeness to God, in devotion to God, as you're being recreated in the image of Christ. If you go in a restaurant, and maybe it's a popular place on a Friday night, and you neglected to call ahead, and you don't have uh, reservations, you go in, and immediately you, you look across the restaurant, and you say, oh, well, this is good. There's three tables right there. They're, they have seating for me. But the host comes and says, I'm sorry, we can't seat you. It'll be 45 minutes. And you say, well, wait a minute. There's three tables right there. Oh, I didn't see those three tables have a reserved sign on them. They are waiting for someone else. They're set apart to belong to someone else, and they don't belong to the interloper who just walked in and forgot to make a reservation. We can use that same principle here in this text. We are reserved as the property of God who has called us and given us new birth and given us hope put his spirit in us, saved us by the blood of Christ. We are God's reserved tables, you might say. We're not tables, but the principle applies. And so we are devoted to God's holy ways and God's holy character. And if you need an example of this, just think of Peter who's writing. Just review a little bit in your mind the Peter that you remember from the Gospels and some of the things that you would be told about him there. How he was always, I don't know how the guy managed to walk because he always had one foot in his mouth. He, he probably hopped a lot because one foot was always busy down his throat, you know. He always was saying things he shouldn't have said or, or acting in an impulsive way. But that's not the only thing to know about Peter. That's one of the reasons I love this letter so much is this is Peter 30 years on. 30 years of God's holiness and perfecting and sanding and rubbing the rough edges and working by the Holy Spirit to change this man. People, you know, critics read First Peter and they say, oh, this could not have been written by Peter. It's too high-minded. You know, Peter was a Galilean fisherman. He was too rough and, and wasn't educated enough and wasn't refined enough to have written First Peter. Well, they take no account of 30 years of God's working holiness in this man's life. He was a different man. Indeed, it's right he was a different man. But that was the working of God as Peter was devoted to his Lord and Savior and his character changed degree by degree by degree. Now, secondly, I want to just take put together three 
subpoints here of how holiness does its work in us. Each of these subpoints would be worthy of more development, but we will, in a sense, be able to develop it more because it relates to other things we'll face in this letter. The first subpoint here as to how holiness does its work is it calls us to right thinking. I believe the King James translation there at uh, verse 13 says, gird up the loins of your mind. A very first century image, the idea of a workman who wore a longer garment, maybe knee length or more, and if he was going to run or do some heavy work or something active, he would take that robe and tuck it into his belt so he'd be ready to work without the robe being a problem or catching against things as he worked or ran. Prepare your minds, gird up your mind for action because the mind is the factory of human behavior. And yet we find today a lot of people who don't really even use their minds that much. They move through life and they're a member of human society and they kind of just want to blend in. So what are people my age doing or thinking? And they'll go on and tell us, well, polls say the millennials are doing this. And I want to think, well, that may be true of a lot of millennials, but I'm sure there are other millennials that are doing something different, that don't think exactly the same way. Baby boomers, we're famous, my generation, for how we supposedly influence everything because somebody would have it that we all think they'll like. And I say, pardon me, but we don't. God gave us minds. And Paul, in writing to the Romans, talked about the renewing of our minds in Christ. We have a new mind to think. And we need not just let our brains go into neutrality and follow peer pressure or advertising or our own selfish whims or emotional pulls one direction or another. We don't just have to take the path of least resistance. We can sit down and think because God in Christ has allowed us to be reasonable people who know that there are things that are true and things that are false, and we dare not just put our minds in neutral and stop thinking. Not long ago, I was thinking about something my father often used to say to me that I realized it just sort of dawned on me like a light bulb that Dad was using a very good way of discipline without being rough with me because I can hear him saying to me, Michael, you know better than that. Have you ever used that, parents? Michael, you know, no, it's not Michael, but whatever your child is. You know better. And I thought, you know, that's a really good way to deal with a child because you're not humiliating the child. You're not saying, you stupid child, why did you do a dumb thing like that? No, you're saying, you did wrong. So certainly I was being rebuked. But the rebuke was a redemptive one because it was saying, I expect more of you. I think you have a better brain than that to stop, consider, and take a different path. I thank my dad for at least honoring me that much even when I did really dumb things because I think I was probably drawn into better behavior by that more so than if he had given me some kind of a really rough, insulting rebuke. Now, God doesn't demand that we all be intellectuals with you know, brains that uh, go to a 190 IQ or something, but he does demand that we all think. He's saying here, think. 
Be sober-minded as you consider how you are going to respond to God. And then this, this rolls right into the second item that's here, this second sub-point about how holiness does its work as we're commanded to be self-controlled. Well, one real opposite of being self-controlled is being drunk or being under the influence of a drug or a, a chemical of some kind, something in your blood that, that takes over control of you. You're not controlling yourself anymore. You're foolishly spewing things and staggering down the street and acting in an insulting manner because you're intoxicated. Well, Peter was not necessarily dealing just with literal intoxication of alcohol here, but he was saying, you need to be the sober people of this society. Think of it. It's as if the Word of God is telling us you live in a world full of drunks, and I expect you to be sober. I expect you to be, as it were, the designated drivers of this society, those who can be counted on to do sensible things, to remain calm and focused and make good choices while others are simply spinning out of control. So, of course, if we're obeying this command, we are going to march out of step with things the rest of the society might be doing. Our first priority is not to say, how can I just fit in? How can I just blend in with the masses? In fact, if you're blending in with the masses all the time, you're probably in trouble. You're probably not using a Christian mind. You're probably not thinking in a sober way. And then a third way is a sub-point that Peter here describes this reaction of holiness at work in us is the obedience of a child to his parent. As obedient children, he says, do not simply conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Childlike obedience looks at who the parent is and seeks to copy the parent. Because educators will tell you the most basic form of learning is imitation. Children learn from imitation from a very, very young age. A little three-year-old girl playing with her doll may very well be following actions and words that she sees her mother using with a three-month-old baby sister. And she's not aware of the fact that she's preparing for motherhood at age three, but she really is. By imitating the actions of her mother, she's learning to be a mother herself one day and doing for her doll what she one day will do for a child. When we observe the character of God and the actions of God and the actions of Christ in the Scriptures and consciously say, I am going to tell the truth because Christ told the truth. I am going to remain faithful to my marriage partner because God commanded that. I will consciously obey what my parent, my spiritual parent, has told me to do. It says here, take these steps. Take baby steps like obedient children, and they will build on each other, and steps will become habits, and habits will become character. So Peter says in verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, you be holy in what you do. Be devoted to God. Be devoted to that core element of God's character that is other, altogether other than what you see in people of this world, people 
that he describes here uh, have passions of ignorance. Is that what you want to be controlled by? Passions of your former ignorance? Or the great character of God? There's an interesting passage in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah 14.20 has a place where holiness in personal life is being illustrated. And the prophet wrote there, the words, quote, holy to the Lord should be inscribed on the bells of your horses and the cooking pots of the Lord's house will be like sacred bowls in front of the altar. In other words, Zechariah was saying, you should think of your life in that every common object in your life is somehow devoted to the service of the Lord. It, it, it may be a mundane implement, the bells on a horse's harness. That's, you know, not a particularly useful thing, but it's a small thing in your life. Well, that, your cooking pot, whatever, should be dedicated to the glory of God. And you say, well, I don't see that that fits me too much. I don't have bells on my horses. In fact, I don't have a horse. Uh, and your, my cooking pot says... I don't know, Alcoa or something. It doesn't say dedicated to the Lord. But let me put it to you this way. Can we think of the words holy or dedicated to the Lord being somehow on our home computer, our laptop, our iPhone? Maybe some of you would even make a little label and put it on your laptop, holy to the Lord. I use this machine, this marvel of technology, In a way, I desire my Lord and Savior to be pleased by the way I'm using it, the choices I'm making about where I visit. Same for your TV remote. Take a piece of adhesive tape and put it on the side and write, Holy to the Lord, I dare you. And then look at that as you surf your way through what the world calls entertainment today. You see all the applications, all the choices we make in our lives. Where will I go? What will entertain me? How will I dress? Ladies, I venture into a subject to get me in trouble. You're going to buy a nice outfit for a holiday party. Are you going to buy the the outfit that the models on TV influence you to buy that expose as much skin as it can and, and maybe you think make you look glamorous rather than adorned by the beauty that God has given you and modesty, the clothing you buy, the places we spend our time, the company we keep, these things are holy to the Lord. And many daily acts like this should not be following simply the lowest common denominator of our society, but rather a conscious action by a Christian to say, I will have this be devoted to my Lord and God who has worked in my life. If we looked at 2 Peter 1.4, the epistle after this, real quick, we're not studying that yet, but 2 Peter 1.4 says that as we walk in holiness, we become, quote, partakers of the divine nature. Now, we're not gods and goddesses, but God, by his Holy Spirit, is actually inhabiting his people, sculpting us, bringing the moral beauty of Jesus Christ to come to pass in us. Wonder of wonders, sinful as we still are, weak as we are, disgusted as we might be with ourselves, and you should be your own greatest critic, as we are holy to the Lord in a conscious way, 
we don't even realize probably the ways in which God-like, Christ-like character is leaking out around the seams of our life and somebody else is seeing it and saying, what is that? I, I don't know what's influencing that person to act like that. They're actually seeing Christ, whether you know it or not. God's crowning purpose for his people redeemed in Christ is that we would be separated from mere futile earthly passions and be devoted to godlike ways. In response, now the imperative responds to the indicative, in response to what God has already done in us and is continuing to do. There was a Scottish minister in the 19th century, rather famous young man who died at age 29. And you would think, all right, a minister who dies at 29 didn't have very many years of active ministry to influence people. But Robert Murray McShane was one of the great men of God in the few years that he lived. And he was renowned through Scotland for his holy life, his genuine, authentic, godlike life. And McShane once prayed this prayer. He said, O Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can possibly be made. Make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can possibly be made. That should be a prayer for all of us. We are God's possession, bought with the blood of Christ, influenced by his Holy Spirit, being remade in the image of the Lord. And so it is not an unreasonable thing for our God to say, be holy, because I am holy. And Father, we pray that you would humble us by this that we would realize the impossibility of this apart from you being at work, but you are at work. We have acknowledged being chosen by God, being reborn by faith in Jesus Christ, having an inheritance toward which we are moving in hope, joy in our lives. And so those things being true, which came from you, you can help us to seek holiness, which the Scripture says, without which no man shall see the Lord. Help us in our concrete choices and practical decisions of life to implement this for Jesus' sake. Amen.